0: Dodger manager Tommy Lasorda was on a call-in talk show not too long ago and a fan called in and began trashing on Daryl Strawberry because of how he'd let the Dodgers down. And finally, in the course of the conversation, he called Daryl Strawberry a dog. And here's what Tommy Lasorda said in reply. He said, and I quote, You're wrong. Daryl Strawberry is not a dog. A dog is loyal and a dog runs hard after balls. Ouch! Woo. That's quite a quote, isn't it? Now, whatever happened to Daryl Strawberry, huh? I mean, five years ago, eight years ago, this guy was a lock for the Hall of Fame, wasn't he? I mean, he was considered one of the greatest ball players playing. And now, to be honest with you, I definitely wouldn't advise going out and buying Daryl Strawberry rookie cards if I were you, not unless you want to throw money down the drain. So what happened to this guy? What's really interesting is about two years ago after a very stormy career in the late 80s and the early 90s, he came out and said that he had given his life to Jesus Christ and went public with that. And yet, in the two years since then, he's missed rehab workout after rehab workout. He has been in arguments and shouting matches with the general manager. He had an assault charge filed against him by his live-in girlfriend, whom he got pregnant. He has an IRS investigation going on into possible tax evasion. And finally, the last straw this year, he missed opening day for the Dodgers because he was stoned And they had to put him in an inpatient substance abuse program. Finally, this last week, the Dodgers waved Strawberry and said goodbye to him once and for all. You say, Lon, something's wrong here. I mean, something doesn't add up. If a person makes a decision for Jesus Christ, they ought to have a transformed life. I mean, that's what the Bible teaches. And Strawberry definitely didn't. What went wrong? What happened? Well, I think that's a great question. I mean, what is the missing element that brings a decision for Jesus Christ to that critical mass point that transforms a person's life, huh? What is it? Well, I think the answer is right here in Luke 15. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who, what? Repents. Uh Aha, look at verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who what? I didn't hear you. Repents. Right. I think the Bible teaches that repentance is that magical element that produces a critical mass in a decision for Christ, either in a salvation decision or in a decision about some part of your life that produces a transformed life. And without repentance, I don't believe you can get to critical mass. Now, what is repentance, and how do you do it, and why is it important? Those are some of the questions we want to answer as we look at what may be the greatest short story ever told in the history of mankind. We know it is the parable of the prodigal son. Let's look at it together. Verse 11. There was a man who had two sons, Jesus continued. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between the two sons. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country. We don't know how old this boy was, but he was probably a teenager. And he decided that living at home was a drag, big time. Now, that's a common teenage disease, right? I had it. You probably had it. If you've got a teenager, they probably have it. I call the disease grass is greener-itis. You know what I'm saying? Where they begin looking around and going, I'm sick of these rules. I'm sick of these regulations. I'm sick of these restrictions. I'm sick of these responsibilities and all these boundaries. I'm tired of somebody else controlling my life. I mean, mom and dad, ah, they're pretty nice people, but they are totally uncool. They don't have a clue what's going on in the real world, they're fossils. <laughs> And look at what all my friends get to do. Man, if I could just get out of this house and get out there and spread my wings, oh, man, I could fly, whoa. See, that's the disease this boy had, right there. The world beckoned, and man, he wanted to answer. So he cashed in his inheritance early, and he was out of there. Now, Thomas Huxley, the great British writer, said, A man's worst difficulties begin when he is able to do just as he likes. That's a great quote. And this boy was about to learn that lesson in spades. Now watch, verse 13. So he went to a far country and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Whoa. Man, this guy blew into town with a wad of cash in his pocket. His clock is just bulging with shekels. And he said, I'm going to live out every fantasy I've ever had. So he went and got himself the swankiest bachelor pad that he could think of. He went and bought a whole new wardrobe. He bought himself a Rolex watch. He got himself a little tiny red sports car. And he began going to every bar in town. He'd stay out till four o'clock at night drinking and dancing and being with friends. And everybody put their arm around him telling him what a great guy he was, what a buddy he was let's have a beer together he'd go home and go to bed at four o'clock wake up at noon sometimes in bed alone sometimes not alone living out every fantasy he had suddenly one day he reached in his pockets and guess what empty all the money's gone oh boy did things change then look with me verse 14 it says that after he'd spent everything there's a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Well, where are all of his buddies now? Now that he's in need, where'd all his friends go? You know, all the ones that hung out at the bar with him and drank with him, told him what a great guy he was. Where were all they? All these people. Well, he went to the office to see him, and he couldn't get through the secretary. He called him at home and got the answering machine, and nobody ever called him back. These people didn't want anything to do with him. He's out of money. What good is he? I mean, they swore this guy off like a bad case of the pox. And suddenly... All that green grass had turned to stubble. There's a verse in the Bible. It goes like this. The chickens always come home to roost. You say, Lon, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) Well, I know, but it ought to be. It ought to be. But there is a verse in the Bible a lot like it. Listen to this one. Galatians chapter 6. Do not be deceived. Nobody makes a fool out of God. Whatever a man, whatever a woman sows, that very same thing is what they reap. Now, the way I read that, what it says is, be careful, the chickens come home to what? It always happens, always happens. And man, this guy, he'd been out there as a young man sowing sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing. Disobedience to God, sinful behavior, sinful lifestyle. And all of a sudden, guess what? It was harvest time. And this dude began to reap big time. No friends, no money, no food, no job, no nothing. It's all gone. You say, well, why didn't he just go home? Why didn't he just pick his parts up and go home? Not yet. No, sir. This guy's much too proud to go home because to go home, it means he has to admit he's wrong. He's not ready to admit he's wrong. No, sir. He's still got a few little tricks up his sleeve. And so look what the Bible says, verse 15. So he went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him out to his fields to feed pigs. And after a while, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods, with the slop that the pigs were eating. But nobody would give him anything. You know, one of my very favorite places to eat red, hot and blue. You ever eat red, hot and blue. Woo, is that good? pork barbecue. Oh, man, is that good stuff. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it, aren't you? Yeah, I know you are. Well, we're almost done. Pork barbecue. You say, Lon, you can't eat pork barbecue, buddy. You're Jewish. Hey, I want to tell you something. I am free from the law. Thank God I'm free from the law. I can eat all the pork barbecue I want to eat. And I want to tell you, it may send me to an early grave, but I'm not going to lose my salvation because of it. I love pork barbecue. It's the best stuff in the whole world. Now, I'll tell you what, a red, hot, and blue would have had a tough time staying in business in Jerusalem. (laughs) Back in those days. Because you couldn't find an animal that was dirtier or more despicable in the sight of a Jewish person than a pig. I mean, the Old Testament said they're filthy animals and Jewish people weren't even supposed to touch them. And here we got this nice Jewish boy who's not only touching them, he's tending a whole herd of them. Not only is he tending a herd of them, he's down in the pig pen fighting with them for their food. I mean, how much lower could you go? How much more could you degrade yourself than where he was? But you see, friends, sin always leads to the pig pen. It always takes people to the pig pen. And that's where this guy was. But this isn't the end of the story, thank God. This was the turning point. Look at verse 17. And when he came to his senses... Whoa, there's an important verse. When he came to his senses, at the end of his rope, he came to his senses. And I think we ought to take that verse and we ought to put it in 20-point type and we ought to put it in bold print and we ought to put it in italics and we ought to underline it. When he came to his senses... Because this is the fulcrum. This is the climax. This is the apex of the whole story. The man came to his senses. And when he came to his senses, what did he do? He repented. He changed his mind. He made an about turn. He made an 180 degree switch in the direction of his life. That's what repentance means. It means to change your mind. And this guy changed his mind. You say about what? Oh, about God and about his father and about home and about his lifestyle and about his friends and about the way he'd been living and about what money could do for you and about the far country. He changed his life about everything. Changed his mind about everything. Look, verse 17. And he said, how many of my father's hired men? have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Now, this is stupid. I'm going to set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, against God, and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of the hired men. So he got up. Uh Uh-huh, look at this. He got up. He didn't just think about it. He got up and he went back to his father. That's repentance. A change of mind. That's followed by some action. Now, we're going to stop for this morning and we'll finish the rest of the story next week. I want to show you the reception he got before we stop. Look down in verse 20. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around his son. Now, remember, the son had not had a bath. He had not taken a shower. He'd been down in that big slop. And he was dirty and smelly and stinky and sticky and yucky. And his dad ran up and threw his arms around this boy and kissed him all over the face and hugged him. And and now the boy started with his little speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father said, shut up. That's enough. I don't want to hear your speech. Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring out a ring and put it on his finger and show that he's mine again. Bring out sandals and put it on his feet and kill a cow and cook it quick. We're going to have a party. I'm not interested in your speech, son. All I care is your home. Your home. Give me another hug. Come on, put his arm around him. And they walk back to the house together. Get a picture. Isn't this how you'd like to be received if you had been that boy and you'd come home? Isn't this the kind of reception you'd like to have gotten? What if the dad had gone up and said, you're back, huh? Well, get in the house, you're grounded. Well, he could have done that. Or what if he'd have walked up and said, well, looky who's here. Where's all the money, huh? Did you bring anything back with you at all? All my money? Or he could have said, you know, you've disgraced our entire family. We're the talk of the hotel. How dare you do this to us? You wait till you see what I do to you after you did this to our family. Or he could have said, hey, don't stand out here like this. The neighbors might see you get around the back, and get a shower. You stink. Get out of here. When you get cleaned up, you come talk to me. But his dad didn't do any of that, did he? His dad threw his arms around him and he said, welcome home, son. I love you. I love you. And I'm so glad you're back. Welcome home. And folks, the point that Jesus wants us to get is that with God, repentance will always result in Mercy. Anytime you come home like the prodigal son, you will always get the very same response from God that he got. See, he learned about misery in the far country, but when he came home repentant, he learned about mercy. Mercy. Now, let's stop there and let's ask the really important question. You know what it is. What is it? So what? Yeah, Lon, what difference does that make? I'm not interested in tending pigs and I don't stink, so what difference does it make for me? Okay, well, let's look, because I think it makes a big difference for you. I think that it says, verse 17, when he came to his senses. And if I read that right, when he came to his senses means that he repented. What I believe God is saying there is that repentance means coming to your senses. It is a sound, rational, right-minded thing to do to repent. And whether you're a Christian here this morning or whether you're not a Christian, either way, I think repentance is for you. If you're not a Christian and you've never trusted Christ in a personal way, listen to what God says. He says, in the past, God overlooked your ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God's offer to forgive your sin and take you to heaven and give you eternal life is all based on your willingness to repent. So if you're here and you're a non-Christian, repentance is important. It's the only way you can get eternal life. But if you're here, even if you're a Christian, which most of us are, we tend to think, "Oh, well, repentance—that's something for you know non-Christians." That's not true. Listen to what Jesus said in the Bible to Christians. He said, "Those whom I love, Christians, I rebuke and I discipline. Therefore, be earnest and repent." Now, that wasn't written to non-Christians, friends. That was written to Christians. And when we became Christians, when we trusted Christ as our personal Savior, God set out to conform us to Jesus Christ in our character and in our lifestyle and in our attitudes. And along the way, there's all kinds of impurities acting as obstacles and God has to deal with them and he's got to get us to deal with them. And the response God wants from us as Christians in dealing with those impurities is he wants repentance, repentance, So whether you're a Christian or you're not, repentance is for you every day. Repentance is the basis on which God deals with human beings. We don't want it that way. We want God to deal with us on the basis of the country we live in or our background or our money or our standing in society. or Most of us want God to deal with us on the basis of our religious performance. God, I'll perform real good and you deal with me on that basis. God said, I'm sorry, I don't deal with anybody on any of those bases. Too bad. The only basis I deal with human beings on is the basis of repentance. That's it. Well, if that's true, and it is, then that means we better know how to repent if we want to deal with God. So how do we do that? Well, let's see if we can put some handles on it, okay? Let's see if we can make it practical. I have five simple little steps, all from the prodigal son right here, that illustrate what it means to repent. So you listen, because you need it, whether you're Christian or you're not. Number one. In order to repent, step number one, we need to admit that we are going in the wrong direction. That's where it's got to start. We got to admit we're going in the wrong direction. Look what the prodigal son here did. He said in verse 17, my father's hired servants have plenty to eat and I'm starving to death. My life is going in the wrong direction. I'm on a crash and burn track here. I need to make a change. Now, that was where repentance began when the boy was willing to say, I am going in the wrong direction. You know, the number one step in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, in their 12-step program is this. I admit that I'm powerless over alcohol, that my life has become unmanageable, and I am self-destructing. And they say, until you can get an alcoholic to say that and mean that, you can't help him. You can't help her. Why? What is that really saying? It says, I'm going in the wrong direction. And I need help. That's all it says. And I believe that this is the hardest step. This is the toughest step for most people when it comes to repentance because nobody likes to admit they're wrong. The problem is pride. Just like with the prodigal son, he didn't want to admit he was wrong. That's what took him all the way to the pig pen. He could have gone home sooner, but no, sir, he was proud and he wasn't about to admit that he was going in the wrong direction. Who's the greatest baseball player of all time? Say, Babe Ruth. Ruth. Well, maybe a blue Garrick, maybe Ty Cobb, Ted Williams. Maybe, maybe if you go, however, on the price of their baseball cards, there's one person, nobody else even close. You know who it was? Number seven was his number. You know who he was Mickey Mantle. Of course. Thank you. I met a guy after second service who said, you know, years ago, I rode home to Oklahoma on a plane, and Mickey Mantle was sitting right next to me when he was playing for the Yankees, and we introduced ourselves, and he said to me, what do you do? And I told him, I said to him, he said, what's your name? And he said, Mickey Mantle. And he said, I said to him, what do you do? (laughs) He said, I play ball. And he said, I said to him, what kind of ball? Football? Baseball? Basketball? Can you believe this? Where was this guy? Zoned. Okay, well, anyway... Wherever, Mickey Mantle, you know his rookie card sells for $25,000? Don't you wish you had back some of those cards you put in your bicycle spokes as a kid? Man, if you had some of those cards back, you could retire and buy half of West Virginia with those Mickey Mantle cards, believe me. Now, I know I'm going to get lots of cards and letters, keep them coming, from West Virginia people. (laughs) But it's true. Anyway, Mickey Mantle wrote an article in Sports Illustrated entitled, My Life as an Alcoholic. Back in April of this year. If you haven't read it, I tell you, it's one of the most moving articles I've ever read. And Sports Illustrated usually doesn't have moving articles, you understand? But I sat there and wept as I read this article, seeing what was happening in this man's life. Mickey Mantle is 62 years old. He's a grandfather now. Here's what he said. He said after 42 years of drinking, he was losing his memory. His liver was severely damaged. His third son had died of cancer and he hadn't even been there emotionally. He'd been drunk all the time. Wasn't even there for his kid. He was having anxiety attacks. He was passing out. He was having to be put in the hospital. And here's what he said. And I quote, it got to the point where I was worrying so much about everything. What was happening to my memory, how awful my body felt, how I had not been a good father or a good husband, that I was even afraid to be alone in my own house. There were times I locked myself in my bedroom just to feel safe. This is Mickey Mantle. I was physically and emotionally worn out. I had hit rock rock bottom i knew i couldn't go on like this i needed a change the only tragedy is that he wasted 62 years of his life before he realized that friends this is where repentance always starts with a humble recognition on our part that we are out of step with god in all of our life or in some part of our life and that it's costing us the blessing of god step two Not only do we need to admit we're going the wrong direction, but step two, we need to come clean about our sin. Come clean about our sin. Look here at verse 18. The prodigal son said, verse 18, I will get up and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop time out. Did you hear him say anything about my parents, society, the economy, peer pressure, the devil? Hear anything about that? I didn't. I hear him saying, I did it. I am responsible. I take the responsibility. I blew it. I did the sinning. It's all me. I take the credit for that. That's the language of repentance. When you want to blame everybody else and everything else for your problems, you're not ready to repent repentance is brutal friends repentance is a bloody process but it never spares itself and it never softens the blow it faces the issue square and says yes I did it it was my problem I am responsible it wasn't society my parents the economy or anybody else it was me and people who repent are willing to pay any price to be right with God and right with people and healthy themselves There's no blame shifting, no excuses, no alibis, no rationalizations. It's I did it. Number three, not only do we have to come clean about our sin, but number three, we need to confess our sin to God and to people openly and be willing to accept God's forgiveness. Look what the prodigal son did. He said, I'm going back and I'm going to say, Father, I'm going to give you this big confessional. I did it. I blew it. I'm not worthy to be your kin anymore. I've wasted all the money. Look, that takes a lot of courage, huh? And throughout the word of God, what we see is a willingness on the part of people who are genuinely repenting to be open and confess their sins. That's a sign of true godly repentance. You know, there were two kings in the Bible, two great kings. One was named Saul, one was named David. You know this. Now, what's interesting is both of them kind of had some problems. Both of them kind of messed up a little bit. Saul, well, he did a sacrifice he shouldn't have done. And he went into the tabernacle when he shouldn't have gone in. And he went to see this witch when he shouldn't have. And all right, so not so good. What did David do? David committed adultery. He lied. He deceived. And when he couldn't find a way around the fact that he'd gotten this woman pregnant, he brought her husband back and committed first degree premeditated murder. They say, well, golly, between the two, Lon, I mean, David sure seems like he did a whole lot worse stuff. You're right. He did. You know what's really interesting? God allowed David to stay as king and he took Saul and he removed him. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it does. Makes all the sense in the world. Because you see, when confronted by sin, David was willing to openly confess it and openly repent of it. Saul wasn't. When Nathan confronted him, David said, you're right, Nathan. I have sinned. We need to tell the nation, I have done wrong. I have let them down. I need to be forgiven by God. Do you think that's possible, Nathan? Nathan said, God can forgive you, David. Saul said, Samuel, come here, come here, come here. Now look. Let's not make a big deal out of this, okay? Let's not blow this out of proportion. All right, so I went and saw a witch. Okay, so I did a few things wrong. But everybody does things wrong. And I'm not losing face in front of the people. You understand? You're not going back there and embarrass me. I don't want a word said. I'll deal with it right here with you. Let's deal with it. But in front of the people, everything's hunky-dory. You understand? And God said, I can't deal with that. I can deal with David's heart, but I can't deal with that. Saul, you're out. See, friends? Confession is a part of repentance. When we're really broken about our sin and what we've done, the way God needs us to be broken in order to repent, we're not going to try to hide it. It'll be open season. And we'll tell people what we've done, and it's okay. Fourth, to repent, we need not only to confess it, but we need to accept the consequences of our actions. And if possible, Go make restitution. Go make amends. We need to accept the responsibility of our actions and the consequences. Look at this boy. He comes home and he says, I am no longer worthy to be your son. You say, do you think he was manipulating? No, I think he believed that. And he was right. He was no longer worthy to be called a son after what he did. He said, just make me one of the hard hands and I'll live in the barn. And that's OK. I understand. I brought that on myself. That's OK, father. And you know what? Oftentimes, true repentance requires more than just confession. It requires action. It requires that we take responsibility and even consequences for what we've done and that we go out and make things right with people if it's at all possible. And for some of us, repentance may mean that we've got to go file amended 1040s. Mm-hmm. And for some of us, repentance may mean that we have to go return stolen property. I mean, how many government pens do you have? And for some of us, it may mean that repentance may mean that we have to go seek others out whom we've hurt and humble ourselves and ask him to forgive us because we were wrong. You say, Lon, that's humiliating. That's humbling. That's embarrassing. Yes, it is. But if you did it and you're responsible, then repentance means that you accept the consequences and you go make it right. And a person who really wants to repent will do that as hard as it may be. If there's repentance happening in your life, people are going to know about it. Fifth and finally, not only do we have to admit we're going the wrong direction, come clean about our sin, openly confess it, be willing to go make it right. But fifth and finally, to really repent, we've got to be willing to make a clean break from sinful behavior, a clean break from sinful behavior. Look what the prodigal son did. Verse 20, it says, so he got up. He didn't just sit in the pig pen and think about what it might be like to go back home and confess his sin. The Bible says he got up and he walked out of the pig pen, out of the foreign country, made a clean break and went home. And went home. And no matter how you slice it, friends, a person cannot repent unless there is a deliberate decision to break away from and turn away from whatever sinful behavior it is that you're repenting of. This is the missing element when we talk about repentance in our 20th century Christianity. And so many of us as Christians, we go through the same four steps over and over and over and over and over like a washing machine around and around and around. And we never seem to break out because nobody ever tells us that it's not just enough to admit it and confess it and try to make it right. We've got to be willing to make a clean break at some point. When I came to know Christ as a college student, I was living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And the man who led me to Christ said, all right, Lon, now you've confessed Christ. Now you've been baptized. The next most important thing you need to do, you know what it is? I said, what? He said, you need to leave town. I said, what? Leave town? This is my town. I've been here five years. I know almost everybody in town. He said, I know that's the problem. You know, everybody at the beer joints and everybody that's using drugs and all your fraternity brothers, you know, Animal House over there. You know all those people. You've got girlfriends spread all over the city and doing things you ought not be doing with them. Yeah, that's the problem, Lon. That if God's going to get Chapel Hill out of you, he's going to have to get you out of Chapel Hill, son. And he said to me, what you need to do is get out of town and make a clean break. And if you're not willing to do that, he looked me right in the eyes. I'll never forget it. He said, if you're not willing to make that kind of clean break, you will never turn out to be much for God. Well, well, you know what I did? I packed everything I owned in a knapsack, put it on my back, took my dog and set off hitchhiking around the country. Never went back to Chapel Hill except to visit once or twice in the last 20 years. And in retrospect, that was the best advice anybody ever gave me in my early Christian life. I needed to get out of town. I needed to make a clean break. And I believe God was waiting to see how serious I was. And he was going to be easy for him to tell. If I stayed in town, I wasn't really interested in making much of a clean break. And friends, when we don't tell people this, you say, Lon, that sounds so hard. Well, it might be hard, but I'll tell you what. I believe that it's that willingness to make a clean break from sin that really is the critical mass point of repentance. It's what really takes repentance and turns it into transformed living. Otherwise, we just keep going through the same four steps over and over and over again. This is what brings it to critical mass, folks. This is like pulling out the boron rods and letting the thing go to work. And it may mean that some of us have to break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It may mean that some of us may have to quit the job we're at presently. It may mean that some of us may have to cut back on the cable TV that we order into our house because some of the stuff that comes in on it that we watch. It may mean that some of us have to change the hotel we stay at because of the pornography they pump into our room. It may mean that some of us may have to dress differently. It may mean all kinds of things, but I'll tell you what. In every repentance that I've ever seen or heard of, There's been a clean breaking point where God has expected people to walk away from sin. And if they don't do it, it never turns into critical mass, folks. What are our principles? Number one, admit you're going in the wrong direction. Number two, come clean about your sin. Number three, confess it openly. Let God forgive you. Let other people forgive you. Number four, be willing to accept the consequences for what you've done. And make restitution where you can. And number five, what really brings it to critical mass, you got to make a clean break with sin. You say, Lon, this is pretty heavy. I'm kind of depressed, to be honest with you. Well, don't be. Because the encouraging part about repentance is, the beauty of it is, whenever we repent, we'll find God there with his arms wide open, just like the father in this story, ready to take us in his arms and love us and kiss us and hug us, give us a second chance, forgive us. Friends, repentance always results in mercy. Remember we said that? And it's true. And if you want God's richest blessing in your life, and if you want the mercy of God to be able to be expressed in your life without hindrance, then you and I are going to have to be people who know how to repent every single day. Now, I don't know if God's been speaking to you about some area of your life this morning, or maybe your whole life if you're here and you're not a Christian, where he needs repentance, but... If he has, I'm going to give you just a moment of silence for you to bow your head and say, God, I hear you. Let's talk a little bit about that area and what I need to do to repent. I'm willing. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for you talking to us about something like this this morning, which we really need. If this is the basis on which you do business with human beings, then we definitely need to know how to do this, Lord, this thing called repentance. And so thank you for helping us. And I pray for people all over the auditorium this morning who in these quiet moments have said, God, I need to repent about this. I need to repent about that. I need to repent about my whole lifestyle and become a Christian. Lord, I pray that you would come alongside of them, put your arm around them, hug them, and Reassure them of your love and provide each of them with the strength that they need and the courage that they're going to need to follow through on the commitment they've made to you this morning. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you don't deal with us on the basis of race, color, economic status, education, because some of us would be very disadvantaged. Thank you, you deal with us on an even level called repentance. And there's not a one of us who can't meet the requirements of that. Thank you, Lord. You always love us when we're willing to come your way. We thank you for your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name.